0: Back on now. We can open your... <laughs> Didn't want you to hear me blow my nose, did you? Uh. Okay, I'm in Hebrews. i got to get in John. i got to make sure I'm in the right book this morning. John chapter 1 is where we're going to continue to hang out this morning. And as I've been saying the past few weeks together as we've opened up the book of John, we live in a world of spiritual confusion. And you've got to remember our theme for the past few weeks. In order to Love and worship Jesus properly and to serve him rightly, we've got to know who the true Jesus is, the true Jesus of the Bible. Back in December, on December 10th, Dr. Larisha Hawkins, an associate professor of political science at Wheaton College. Wheaton is a famous evangelical Christian college. She posted a photo of herself on Facebook wearing a hijab, a a Muslim garb, along with this post. This is what she said, a, a Christian professor at a Christian school. She says, I quote, I stand in religious solidarity with Muslims because they, like me, a Christian, are people of the book. And as Pope Francis stated last week, we worship the same God. A few weeks later, she was placed on administrative leave in order for the College to figure out exactly what she meant by that statement. Well, she doubled down and she had a press conference, and this is what she said about the decision of the administration. This is back in January 6th, just a few weeks ago. She says, I am flummoxed and flabbergasted by the events of the last two weeks. Wheaton College cannot intimidate me into cowering in the fear of the enemy of the month as defined by real estate moguls. Senators from Texas, Christians from this country, bigots and fundamentalists of all stripes. Now, what are we to think about her statements? Do we as Christians and Muslims worship the same God? And where's Jesus in the midst of all this? How how are we supposed to come to grips with that? Many of you may be familiar with Rob Bell. About fifteen years ago, he was solid. He was the pastor of Mars Hill Church in Michigan, not to be confused with Mark Driscoll of Mars Hill Church in Seattle. There's two Mars Hill churches. But Rob Bell, about five years ago, came out with a book called Love Wins. And this book got him into hot water. And basically, he ended up being fired from his church. And now he's gone to Hollywood to start a sitcom. And he's touring with Oprah on the Oprah Channel, spouting his quasi-mystical spirituality. And this is what he says. He says, As soon as the door is open to Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and Baptists from Cleveland, many Christians become very uneasy saying that Jesus doesn't matter anymore. The cross is irrelevant. It doesn't matter what you believe. What Jesus does is declare that he and he alone is saving everybody. And then he leaves the door way open, creating all sorts of possibilities. People come To Jesus in all sorts of ways sometimes people use his name other times they don't some people have so much baggage with regard to the name Jesus that when they encounter the mystery present in all creation grace peace love acceptance healing forgiveness the last thing they're inclined to name it is Jesus love wins all paths lead to Jesus Jesus is saving everybody regardless of whether you even have faith in him or not. What are we to think about Christian college professors saying that Muslims and Christians worship the same God and megachurch pastors who've gone off the rails to deny the, the reality that Christ is the only way of salvation? How are we to deal with these statements? And more importantly, how does John answer these questions? What are the essentials Salvation. This message is going to be very basic this morning, but I think it's very fundamental in an age of spiritual confusion. What are the essentials of salvation? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to have a relationship with God? And John introduces these from the very beginning. So let's read together John 1 1 through 9. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Was coming into the world. Now, verse 9 has been mistranslated by a lot of people to make it teach something that it does not. Verse 9 says that the true light that was coming into the world was giving light to everyone. And some people have taken this to mean that every single person now that Jesus has come has somehow got this inner light, this inner ability to just know truth and that all people are basically inherently enlightened to the truth. But that can't be what it means based upon what we saw last week. When people are spiritually blind to the light and need a witness to the light. What this is saying is that when Jesus came in the flesh, he now shines forth brightly who God is and the need for salvation. And so what we see here in verses 10 through 13, where we're going to camp out this morning, some deep theological, basic, essential, foundational truths about salvation. So let's read verses 10 through 13. And let's see these four. There's four of them. Four great, powerful truths about salvation, which I think is very important. Whether you're saved and been saved for 50 years or whether you're here this morning and you just walked in and you have no idea what we're talking about, this message is for you this morning. So let's read John 1, 10 through 13, our main text for this morning. He, speaking of Jesus, was in the world... So we're going to explore four truths this morning, and and they're kind of, I've given you the big theological word, and then I've defined it, and then we're going to see how John explains it. So here's number one, alienation, alienation. Because sinners do not know or receive Jesus, they stand alienated from God in their guilt. Now when we say the word alienated, we're not talking about aliens from space coming down, we're talking about Separation, alienation, guilt. I want you to see how John expresses this. In verse 10, what does it say? Jesus was in the world. He made the world. He was the creator of the world. He came in the flesh in the world. But what does it say? The world did not know him. This is the Gentile world in the context of what John's saying. The Gentile, the non-Jewish world, the, the big bad world. When John uses the word world, don't think of the world as this big place. Think about the world as this bad place. It's not that the world is so big, it's that the world is so bad. And John says that the world did not know Jesus. That's a very important word in the Greek text. It doesn't just convey that the world didn't know about Jesus. Of course, a lot of people know about Jesus. What that word conveys is relationship. The world did not have a relationship, a knowing, a saving relationship with Jesus. They did not know him. They stood in rebellion against him. They they saw the facts of Christ staring them in the face, his death, burial, and resurrection. They saw him in the flesh, but they chose not to enter into a relationship with him. They did not know him. The Gentile world. But then John takes it one step further in verse 11 and moves from the Gentile world to say even the Jewish world. The Jews who would have known who their Messiah was. What does verse 11 say? He came to his own, his own people. And his own people did not receive him. He's talking about the Jews there. His own people did not receive him. Did not welcome him. Did not believe in him. So here's the key issue about alienation. Both Jew and Gentile. Those that are Israelites, those that are non-Israelites. All humanity... They did not know Jesus, they did not receive Jesus. And because of not knowing or receiving Jesus, you stand alienated, you stand guilty, you stand separated from Jesus if you don't know and receive him. Paul says the same exact thing in the book of Romans. He talks about how Jews and Gentiles, the whole world, is alienated from God. Romans 3, 9-12. through 12. Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they become worthless, no one does good, no, not even one. Every single human being is born into this world guilty. Alienated, separated from God because of our sin. And Paul says it this way in Colossians 1:21 through 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So What does this alienation mean for you if you're here this morning and you're alienated? It means this, if you don't receive Jesus, if you don't accept Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, you will die in your sins and be guilty. You will be alienated. You will be separated from God. You can't clean yourself up. You can't do enough good works to make it right. You can't forgive yourselves. You can't cross the barrier in your own good deeds. You are alienated. You cannot produce this right standing with God in and of yourself. So that's a huge problem. Every single person stands alienated, guilty, separated from God. And you can't do anything about it to fix it in and of yourself. Which leads us to the second essential truth of salvation. Which is a glorious truth. It's the answer. Here's the second truth. Regeneration. God must overcome your spiritual deadness by sovereignly causing you to be born again. Now, what does regeneration mean? Think about the two words here. Re, what does re mean? Again. Thank you. What does generate or genesis mean? To be born or to be created. So here's the point. You and I need to be recreated regenerated reborn born again and notice what john says there john says there in verse 13 who were born not of the blood or of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, he's going to unpack this more in chapter 3 when he talks about Nicodemus, about being born again. Right here, he just basically just kind of lays it on the table and says, you must be born again, born of God. And he gives three ways that you're not born of God. He lists three things there. The first thing he says is not of blood, or literally, bloods. What he's saying there is, it's not your family lineage, it's not by genealogy, it's not by birth. You're not born again by natural descent. And see, in John's audience, they would have thought to themselves, well, I'm a good Jew. I come through the lineage of Abraham. I come through the lineage of David. Obviously, because I'm born a Jew, I must be in a right standing with God. So it must be by my bloodline. It must be my natural descent. And sometimes people in America think, well, maybe I'm saved because I'm an American. Or I'm saved because my parents go to church. And you can't get to heaven on the coattails of your parents or your grandparents. So your family lineage, your descent, your, your heritage, the fact that you grew up in a Christian home, John's saying that doesn't make you born again. And the second thing he says, it's not by the will of the flesh it's not by something you can produce. You can't do it. You you in your fleshly state, you in your sinful state, you can't produce this new birth. You can't just wake up one day and decide that you're going to do it. It's not the product of human will. You you can't will yourself into being born again. And then number 3, he says, it's not of the will of man. In other words, another person can't come and confer the new birth upon you. A priest can't come and baptize you. A pastor can't come and lay hands on you. Uh, you, you, It can't be conferred from one person to another. I'm not a magical pastor that if you come to me and I say a special prayer for you, you're automatically born again. John's blowing all those things out of the water. He's saying the only way you can be born again is if God does it. God's got to be the one that does it. John one eighteen, I mean, sorry, James one eighteen, of his own will, he brought us forth. He he caused us to be born again by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So here's the thing: because you're alienated, because you don't receive Jesus, because you're sinful, you're helpless, you're hopeless. You can't do anything about your sinful state in and of yourself. God has to do it. God has to change you. God has to do something to you. You have to be born of God. You have to be born again. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel gave this great picture of what God promises to do in your heart and in your life. Ezekiel chapter 36, 26-27. through 27. Listen to the imagery. This is God speaking. God says there's going to come a day And this is when Jesus comes on the scene and we'll we'll readdress this again when we get to John chapter three. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Who's doing the work here? God says, I will, I will. And notice the imagery. What does he do? He takes out a heart of stone. What's a heart of stone? It's a dead, unresponsive, sinful, alienated heart that every single one of us is born with, and we can't take that out. God has to take that out. God has to remove that heart of stone and put in the Holy Spirit, the heart of flesh. Titus 3, 4 through 5, you actually have the word regeneration show up in the Bible. But when the goodness... And loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but how did he do it? According to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's very important to understand what happens when you get born again. When God opens your heart. When God replaces your heart of stone with the heart of flesh, when God makes you spiritually alive, here's what He does. He liberates your will that's in bondage and makes you a new creation to where you freely come to Christ in faith, where you could not do so before because you were alienated. Listen to the gift of God that happens to us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If God has caused you to be born again, you're a brand new person. You're a new creation. And let me just say this. Even the faith that you had to believe in Jesus is not your own. It's a gift that God gave you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It, faith, is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Paul says in Philippians one twenty nine: For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's been granted to us to believe. It's been given to us as a gift to believe. Okay, so here's the, here's the progression. John says, you are alienated. You do not receive Christ. You do not accept Christ. You do not welcome Christ. But, number two, you need to be born again. You need to be born of God. You can't produce a sin in and of yourself. God must do it to you. Okay, then what happens then? When God causes you to be born again, what do you do? Well, that's number three. The gift of regeneration is, number three, conversion. Here's what conversion is. The new birth produces the ability for you to receive and believe in Jesus' name. I want you to pay close attention to the order here. Order is important. You may disagree with me on this, but I think the Bible teaches that you are born again first, and then you repent and believe. Because you were dead before, God has to cause you to be born again, and the first thing he gives you is the gift of faith. Let me, let me illustrate this way. How many of you were in your mother's womb and you knew it was time for you to be born and so you yelled out to your mom, mommy, it's time, push me out. How many of you you ever did that? No, it would not be the miracle of childbirth. What happened? The miracle of childbirth pushed you out and what's the first thing you did? Why? Exactly, you cried. You went, wah, So here's what happens in your physical birth. You're born and then you cry. Spiritual birth. You're born and then you cry out to God in repentance and faith. And we see that illustrated here in verse 12. There's got to be conversion. There's got to be conversion. But it happens because you've been regenerated. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name... He gave the right to become the children of God. There's two things there. Number one, receiving Jesus. You've got to receive Jesus. That means you've got to entrust your entire self to Christ. You've got to receive him. You've got to welcome him. You've got to embrace him personally. But not only that, notice what else he says. You must believe in his name. Almost every time, I said this last week, almost every time that John uses believe, it's in some type of present active verb, whether a participle or or, or an actual actual verb. Basically, it means ongoing, continuous, active trusting. It's this faith that trusts. Now, I've used this example before, but I think it illustrates it. When we were younger, married, and Aidan was about four years old, we lived in a house that had a pretty big kitchen area, and there was a kitchen counter. And Aiden and I played this game where he would jump off the kitchen counter into my arms. And he would have this big grin on his face, Daddy, you're going to catch me? And he'd just launch out. And I'd be like, okay, Aiden, I'm going to back up. So I'd back up, and he'd jump out and grab me. He'd get all excited, and then I'd back up. Jump out and grab me, and Daddy, you're kind of far. But you know what? He jumped out, and I grabbed him. Now, here's what could have happened. I could have, kept, I could have backed up and Aiden could have stood there and he could have thought, hmm, my dad's strong, my dad's big. I can ask him, Daddy, are you going to catch me? Yes, I'm going to catch you, Aiden." Hmm, he could have sat there all day and never what? Jumped. But is that faith? You see, there's a lot of people that sit on the edge and say, hmm, I believe God's big enough to save me. Even he's told me in his word that he can save me but I'm just going to sit here on the edge and not actually jump. But that's not faith. Faith means that you plunge your entire self into Jesus, that you totally entrust yourself to him, that you believe in him. Not just that you believe about him, not that you even believe he can save you, but you actually trust him to do so. And that's what John says here. You've got to receive him. You've got to believe in his name. Romans 10, 13 says this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, what does it mean to call upon the name or believe in the name? The reason it says believe in the name of Jesus is because if you go throughout the entire Bible, the name meant God's character. It's who God is, his name. Everything about God is wrapped up in his name, believing in the name of Jesus. And when that happens, there's a transformation. It's called conversion. Conversion means you turn from sin and you turn in faith towards Jesus. So let's think about the the three things we've looked at so far. Alienation. We're separated from God. Regeneration. You've got to be born again. And when God does that, what happens? Conversion. You turn toward faith in Christ. But John mentions a fourth thing. He mentions a privilege. He mentions the result. And here's number four. Adoption. Trusting in Christ results in your having the privilege of being God's child. What does he say there in verse 12? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, what did he give? The right to become children of God. The right, the privilege to become children of God. Now, it's an important for us to understand this because there's a lot of misconceptions in our world today. I oftentimes even hear well-meaning Christians say, well, everyone's God's children. We're all God's children. No, we're all God's creation, but we're not all God's children. If that were true that we were all God's children, then why is this first here? It seems to me that it says that you become a child of God only after you believe in Jesus. The Bible says actually you're a child of wrath before you become a child of God. And don't take my word for it, take Paul's word for it. Ephesians 2 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. There's that alienation. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, so you're following the world, following the <clears throat> prince of the power of the air, that's, 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 that's Satan, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among who we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, so we're following the flesh, our natural lusts, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice how comprehensive Paul says, it's Like the rest of mankind, all of mankind, we are children of wrath, meaning we are alienated, we are guilty, we are separated, until God does the work of making us alive. And if you go on to read the rest of the passage, you find that that's what happens. Look at the rest of the passage, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, you were dead, you were lost, you were a child of uh, wrath, you were separated, but, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. What did he do? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So when God makes you alive, when God causes you to be born again, you go from being a child of wrath to a child of God. And that is a great place to be because if you're a child of wrath, you're alienated, you're under sin, you're condemned, but you go to being a child of God where you get all the blessings. Listen to how Paul says it in Romans 8, 14 through 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, when you become a child of God, Paul says here, you're no longer in slavery. You're no longer in bondage. You're now a child of the king, as we sang earlier during the offertory. tour. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, let me make this very personal this morning because I don't know where everybody is at this morning. I I can't read your minds and look into your hearts, but I I have a sneaking suspicion that there may be some of you in this room that you've walked into this place and you are alienated from God. You're alienated. You're separated from God. You're, You're in your sin. You're under guilt. You're a child of wrath. You're separated from God. So what do you need to do? You need to be born again. But you can't do that. But let me tell you something. We had a conversation earlier in the new members class that kind of illustrated this. How do you know that you're born again? You're believing in Jesus. So let me just say this if you want Jesus this morning and you're crying out to Jesus this morning, and you see the depth of your sin this morning and you know you're guilty and you know you need to be forgiven and you're crying out to Jesus and you're seeking Jesus and you're wanting Jesus and you're receiving Jesus, guess what? That's evidence that God has done the work of causing you to be born again. You wouldn't want Jesus unless he's done that in your heart. And what happens? You go from being a child of wrath to being a child of God. Now, let me help you Christians here this morning. Some of you think, you know what? Sean's using a lot of big theological words, and I don't know exactly how to put this all together. How do you witness to your friends and your family members? Let me give you a very simple way to do it. Take them to this passage of Scripture. It's only four verses. Actually, three. And open it up and, and remember these four things, and you don't have to use the big words. You don't have to say, number one, alienation. Number two, regeneration. Regeneration. Number three, conversion, and number four, adoption. And you don't have to use the pastoral language. Here's what you can do. Open your Bible to your friend and family member that doesn't know Jesus and say, listen, and think in your mind, okay, what are the four things? Well, number one, alienation. Number one, you know what? You're separated from God. You're a sinner. You're under God's guilt. You're separated. You're in your sin. You're guilty. And if you die in your sin, you're going to spend eternity in hell. You are guilty. But here's the thing that has to happen to you. Oh, yeah, regeneration. Number two, yeah, you've got to be born again. You've got to have this heart change. God's got to do a work in your heart. God's got to free you. What do you need to do? Number three, oh yeah, conversion. Number three, oh yeah, you need to receive him. Would you receive him now? Would you believe in Jesus now? Would you repent now? And guess what? Oh yeah, number four, adoption. Guess what? Here's what happens. When you do that, you get to be a child of God and you get to spend eternity in heaven. Real simple. You're a sinner. You need to be born again. Trust in Jesus. You get him in heaven. That's the gospel presentation right there. And you don't have to use the big fancy words. And you can just take him right through John and say, okay, read this. What does it say? Oh, he who made the world, the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Do you know him? Are you separated from him? He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Are you receiving Jesus? Are You're you separated from Jesus, aren't you? You're alienated. But to all who did receive him, oh, you need to receive him. Who believed in his name, are you believing in his name? He gave the right to become children of God. Are you a child of God? Who were born, not of the blood of the will, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Have you been born again of God? I mean, just take it through that passage of Scripture and walk through the gospel with them. So if you're born again this morning, two things. One, praise God that he's done this work in your heart. And number two, share it. Share the joy of what God's done very simply. But if you're not this morning, and you know it in your heart, just remember those four things. You are alienated from God. You're separated from God. Number two, you need to be born again, and you cannot do it. God has to open your heart. Number three, you gotta turn. You gotta trust. You gotta receive Jesus. And when you do that, number four, you become a child of God. You get the gift of heaven. You get the gift of eternal life. You get the gift of being God's child. So would you do what John says here this morning? Would you receive Jesus and would you believe in his name? Don't just stand on the edge of the counter and think about it and contemplate it and wonder about it. But would today you take the leap, you take the plunge. Would you give your life totally to Jesus? And you know what you'll find? Somebody a whole lot stronger than Sean Cole grabbing his son. You're going to find the God of the universe with his arms wide open. Who's big enough to handle all your sin and all your guilt and he will receive you and never let you go so let me ask you to bow your heads this morning says that you're like the wind that blows where it wishes And flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. And so if there's going to be anybody born again this morning, I can't produce it. They can't produce it, only you can produce it. But oh, how I trust in a sovereign Holy Spirit to do the work. And all I know, Lord, is that there are lost people here this morning and there's a powerful Savior ready to save them. So Lord, would you cause many in this place to be born again? Would there be many in this place that have never received you, Jesus, never have believed in your name, never have jumped their life into your arms? Would they do it in these moments right now? Father, I pray for those that are lost this morning that today would be the day they get saved. Thank you that you've overcome our alienation. Thank you that you've caused us to be born again. You've given us that new heart. You've given us that new life. Thank you that you've adopted us into your family, that we're your children. Nothing can take us out of the grip of our sovereign God. And Lord, give us the power this week to share it. Help us to tell people the joy of what it means to have a relationship with you and warn them of what their life will be like in eternity without you, Jesus. Would you give us the power to share and the power to enjoy you in the gospel? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.